Um, oh, it's good to be in worship with you. Let's turn our Bibles uh, to John's Gospel. We're going to read chapter 5 this morning, and uh, verses 30 to 47. But before we jump in, um, as you look for that, um, if you're joining with us for the first time, I just want to say welcome to you. We are so glad that you are here and visiting with us in our midst. As you heard, we're a two-site church in town. We've been all worshiping here in one location, but starting next Sunday, 8.30 will be out at our legacy site under the Bridger Mountains, and then uh, 10 o'clock still here. Um, And we're in the midst of this series where we've been walking through John's gospel sort of one verse at a time. And, and throughout this series, we've stumbled again and again into the same theme just about every Sunday, uh, and it's this. John said that he wrote this gospel for a really specific purpose. He said, these things are written so that you might believe and that in believing you might find life in Jesus' name. I'm going to wear that out. Some of you have already heard me say that a dozen times. These things are written so that you might believe and that in believing you might have life in Jesus' name. Every time we open up this gospel, we should ask the question, how does this scripture help me live my faith this week? Um, And so last week we left off with this story uh, where Jesus was healing this man down by this pool near Bethesda in Jerusalem. And the man had been there some 38 years, remember? 38 years, he was chock full of excuses for why he couldn't be made well, and yet Jesus removes every excuse on the table and heals this man right on the spot. It's such a powerful story. But as you know, every action has an equal and an opposite reaction, right? At least according to Newton. And at least there were two immediate consequences that arose from this miracle, that kind of lead us into our lesson this morning. Let me give you a little context. First, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were convinced that by his act, by this miracle, Jesus had just broken their most holy of rules. In their eyes, you didn't lift a finger on the Sabbath day, right? And so as only Jesus can do, he heals this man and then commands him to carry his mat as well. But to all those within earshot, these are fighting words. The second consequence is that when Jesus' accusers come to him, his response now makes things even worse. He said, I and the Father are one. I mean, in other words, I'm the one who made the Sabbath. I'm God in the flesh. I'll make my own rules. And that, of course, made this crowd that much more angry. And now they want to kill him for what they believe is blasphemy. Last week's sermon is what I call a milkshake kind of lesson. It went down fairly smooth and tasted pretty good. It was an incredible miracle, right? Uh, But today we're going to open up the scriptures and we're going to find Jesus has a plate full of meat and veggies and there's a lot to chew on. Um, But I promise you, today's lesson is going to require a bit more work for us than usual. Um, Because in one singular moment, Jesus wants his accusers to know just how wrecked their hearts have become. They've turned their faith into this list of rules, and they're so caught up in what they think is right. They're so caught up in their pride, they can no longer see the bigger picture. And here's what I want us to learn today. This is what we're going to focus on. This morning, I want to talk about Jesus' diagnosis of our unbelief. Jesus' diagnosis of our unbelief. Pray with me, and then we'll, we'll jump in. God, we thank you for your word to us, Lord. We thank you for the joy that it brings and the hope that we have in in the words that we read, Lord, but also the words of conviction and truth. So God, as we open up your word this morning, we pray, would you speak to us? Lord, would you make our hearts ready to receive what you would have for us by your Holy Spirit? 
God, we want to be changed by you. We want to grow into the likeness of your son, so help us to do that today. Be near, O oh God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, we're going to look at John chapter 5, verses 30 to 47. Let's listen to God's word. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning bush and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of even John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So many of you know the, the story of God's miracle that took place early in my life. Um, shortly after my, I, was, I was born, my, my twin brother and I, we came down with RSV pneumonia. And back in the 80s, RSV, this was a big deal. We were flown down from Wyoming to Denver Children's Hospital, and it was touch and go for some time. Um, but I've never shared with you how the ordeal began. It all started with what seemed like an ordinary cold. One night, my mom was rocking us to bed, and she saw our lips turning blue, so she raced us out the door to the ER. But by the time we got there, the color had moved back into our faces, and everything seemed normal. The doctors looked us over. They, they saw no issues, and so they sent us home. I think they thought my mom was half crazy, told her to get some more sleep. What no one knew was that the cold air from the house to the car and then from the car to the ER, had stimulated our lungs just enough to mask how sick we were. Later that morning, my mom spotted the same bluish lips a second time. This time, the doctor saw it too. So they ran some tests, and as the day went on, it became painfully clear. We had a life-changing diagnosis and a one-way plane ticket south. That diagnosis changed my life. And I share that story because today's lesson is no easy passage of Scripture for us to dig into, right? Jesus takes us on a dive into the deep end of the water. It'd be so easy for us to gloss over these words. But if you miss these 17 verses, you might miss the very diagnosis that could literally save your eternal life today. 
Here's what I mean. Christ finds himself surrounded by these biblical experts, right? These, these men were not only well-versed in the knowledge of the scriptures, they were experts. They were the enforcers of the Hebrews' laws. And as such, no one was more secure in their salvation than them. They believed that their salvation was literally tied to the knowledge of God's word and in keeping of his law, and they had it down pat. They were the scholars. Everyone else was the student. They were the pros. Everyone else was the novice. And in their own minds, their righteousness was certain. Their footing was solid. And yet, just as they put Jesus up on this stand, Christ takes all the fingers that are pointed at him and does a 180. And the great physician now gives a diagnosis of unbelief in the heart of these religious experts. And this is the lesson. This is the diagnosis. Jesus says, you don't believe. And here's why. He says, you become caught up so much in your own glory and in your own reputations and in your own fame that you know nothing of the glory of God. Look at this up on your screens, verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come that you might have life. He goes on in verse 44, he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another, but you've never sought the glory that can only come from him? And these religious experts, they don't get it. They knew God's word in and out, upside and down, but they know nothing of the Messiah that it pointed to. They were specialists in the Jewish law, but they had no idea that Christ had come to fulfill the law that none of them could keep. And just like the invalid man last week, their salvation is standing right in front of them, but they can't see it. Because in their eyes, they don't need it. Look at this in verse 43. Jesus says, if another comes in his own name, you'll receive him, but not me. These religious leaders, they had all the answers, and yet they missed the final exam. Benjamin Franklin once told a story about a day when he went to have dinner with a Puritan pastor named Cotton Mather. He said in one evening he learned from this man the most important lesson of his life. This is what he wrote in his memoir. Look at this up on the screens. He said, Mather was showing me around the house, and there was a very low beam near the doorway. I was still talking when Mather began shouting, Stoop! Stoop! I didn't understand what he meant and banged my head on the beam. You're young, he said. You have the world before you. Stoop as you go through it, and you'll avoid the hard thumps. Now see, at first it seems that Jesus is the one up on the stand, right? As though he's done something wrong. As though this is some sort of defense against these elitist religious accusations. And yet by the time Christ is finished, as only he can do, he turns all the tables upside down. Christ tells them, you don't get it. You don't understand who I am. And you can't figure out why I came. Because you're so caught up in your own pride and righteousness and your own image of perfection that you can't see what I came to do. And to prove his point, he brings three witnesses to the stand. Look at this in verse 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and his testimony is true. You know, at the time, if you were to bring your accused to court and bring charges against them, Hebrew law required that you brought at least one witness with you. It was not enough for you to bring your charge by yourself. 
And so in keeping with the custom, Jesus begins to lay out a case for the new accused. And Christ calls his first witness. He says, you've already heard the testimony of man, of John the Baptist. Look at this in verse 35. He says, John was a burning and shining lamp to light your way. But you went the other direction. And to be sure, then Christ calls a second witness. He says, the next witness is my works. Just look at the miracles and the signs and the wonders. Every one of them testify that the Father has sent me. But even as you watch them unfold, you don't see the glory of God before you because you're too caught up in your own. And so comes a third witness to the stand. This time, Jesus brings up the scriptures. Look at this in verse 39. He says, you believe the words of Moses and you think the law will save you. And yet the holy word of God was written to bear witness about me. It reminds me of uh, Romans 8, 3. I think Paul gives us some clarity here. Look at this. He says, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us. And yet these religious experts, they refuse to believe in him. They're so caught up in their own pursuit of self. They all believe they are so correct. They're so caught up in their image and their flawlessness and their reputation. They know nothing of what it is to bring glory to God. And they have no idea that apart from Christ, the diagnosis is terminal. Jesus asked them this telling question. He says, how can you believe when you're so caught up in receiving glory from one another that you're not even looking for the glory that comes from the Father? Do a vitals check with me for a minute. Where do you spend most of your mental time during the day? Is it in worrying about what other people think of you? Or is it being concerned in what God sees in you? Is it in trying to earn your own glory by works? Or is it resting in his glory? You know, I think we live in a day and age where we become more concerned about who it is that's following us rather than who it is we follow. We've gotten caught up with our own status far before we concern ourselves with his. A few years ago, the Alaskan Coast Guard found a man and his dog in a full-blown crisis. They were drowning out in the freezing waters of the Douglas Harbor in Juneau, Alaska. The guard said they found this man without a life jacket trying to paddle his way to shore on this maiden voyage of his homemade raft. But the raft had taken on so much water, it was literally sinking to the bottom of the ocean. They picked him up just in time and brought him back to shore, and they were shocked at the story that he told them. He said the entire vessel was made with nothing else, get this, than duct tape and air. And he was so confident that he would sail across the harbor with this ship that he left the life jacket back on shore. You know, I think it, if we're not intentional with the good news of Jesus Christ, our journey of faith becomes like that vessel. You know, we'll begin thinking that it's our own works that get us into glory. It's our own reputation that builds us status. We'll begin to think that we can fake it till we make it. Look the part, and soon we'll be the part. But let me say this. Even if it looks good, even if everyone around you is convinced of your righteousness, without the saving work of Christ, we are on a sinking ship. 
God's word tells us no one is righteous, not one. And the hard truth is this. Without the proper diagnosis, our lives are in peril. Even if you receive glory from everyone around you, all the attaboys in the world, we've still missed the mark. Back in the days of Martin Luther, there was a saying that was made famous by the late Greek philosopher Aristotle. It had permeated through the mainstream of society, and everyone had sort of bought into this saying. Aristotle was caught up in trying to define the good life, and this is what he said. He said, we become righteous by doing righteous deeds. Anyone like that statement? We become righteous by doing righteous deeds. It, it makes sense. The philosophy stuck. And so early in Luther's life, he, he learned of this quote and he bought into it wholeheartedly. He believed he could be perfect if he just tried hard enough. So as a monk, he kept prayer vigils that would make even the most prayerful of us look lazy. He studied the scriptures, the word of God, laid into the night and again before sunup each morning. He was careful not to stumble into any sin by fixing his eyes on the cross. He thought somehow if he just tried hard enough, he would earn his way into the, the sainthood of all those who had gone before him. And yet as Luther explained it, the harder he tried, the more he became aware of his own brokenness and sin. Soon he realized the dream of perfection that Aristotle had given to him was just that. It was a dream. You know, we could memorize the Bible up and down, backwards and forwards, and we could work our entire lives to keep his every word, but Luther realized what we already know. We all would still fall far, far short of the glory of God. Anyone ever had that person in your life who was such an incredible leader you wanted to live up to their expectations so you wouldn't let them down. Maybe it was a coach or a mentor, a teacher, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent. Like the last thing you would want to hear from them is a word of disappointment, right? Think about this with me. The reason your pursuit of that kind of righteousness had nothing to do with keeping the rules or the bare minimum of the law. It had everything to do with your love and appreciation for who that person was in your life. See, here's the problem with the accusers of Christ. They were living for the rules. They were living for their own glory and not for his. They couldn't figure out who this Jesus was. They expected this self-made man who would come in his own glory. They wanted a leader who was in it for his own fame just as they were. And yet Jesus shows up and he tells them, I'm not here on my own account. I'm living for the Father. I don't receive glory from my man, he said in our scripture. I'm here to glorify him. It's subtle, right? But here's the question. Whose glory are you living for? Let me get really practical for a minute. Just give a few examples for what I mean. Help land this plane. Parents, when your child has a temper tantrum in the middle of the grocery store, or when they misbehave and you have to pull them out of the, the sanctuary and go have a talking with them, are you more concerned with leading them back to the grace of God? Or are you concerned with everyone around you and what they might think of you? Or consider the way that you interact with your colleagues at work. Are you more interested in what your boss thinks of you, what your employees say when you're not around, or what God sees in you? At your Bible study or your small group, are we more concerned with proving our piety or growing in faith? You know, all of us, every one of us, 
will one day take our last breath of air on this earth? Are you more interested in what they'll say about you at your funeral or what God will speak over you when you step into glory? Listen to these words of Christ just before he went to the cross in John 17. It says, after saying these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. So glorify your son so that he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one of you who have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you, Jesus said, here on earth, by completing the work you gave me to do. If you believe for a second that your salvation is wrapped up in your reputation, or if you're secure in your faith because of what the person on the right or the left and thinks about you, if you've placed your self-worth and perfection in the image that you've created for yourself, the hard news is that you're walking as a straw man. And apart from Christ, your duct tape ship is destined for the bottom of the sea. Verse 42, Jesus said it plain and simple. He said, you don't have the love of God within you because you're so caught up in who you are. You've forgotten about me. How can we believe, Jesus says, when we receive glory from one another, but we've never sought the glory that comes from him? It's a tough message, but it's a message wrapped in love, right? Jesus is speaking with the ones he came to save, fighting for their souls. Here in a minute, I want to invite the band to come back up and... um, Crystal's going to lead us in a time of worship, and I just want us to use these lyrics of this song that she's going to sing as our prayer this morning, as she sings about not our glory, but bringing glory to him. Let me pray. Will you pray with me? So God, we we pray right now the words that we'll sing, or that you would be blessed. God, that your name would be lifted high, that you would be treasured, and that everything we do in our lives would glorify you. God, we, we, we echo the words of this song that we owe our lives to you, God. So here we are, Lord. God, we pray, change our hearts, change our focus. Lord, would we be so caught up in the light and the glory of you that we would just fade away, that others wouldn't see us, but they would see you, that we wouldn't be concerned with, with ourselves, but we would be concerned with chasing and pursuing you. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. It's in your glory that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.